You are listening to the sermon podcast for Salem Presbyterian Church in Winston-Salem. Thanks for listening. To learn more about our church, visit salempresws.org. That's salempresws.org. We believe preaching is best when experienced as part of the larger drama of God's people gathering. Something spiritually unique happens when God's people are together. We meet each Sunday to let the liturgy shape us, to hear preaching, and to take the Lord's Supper. And these acts are more robust when done together. Join us Sunday evenings at 5 p.m. in downtown Winston-Salem at 600 Holly Avenue. So we're starting our series in the Gospel of Mark this evening, which is why we're starting in chapter 16. Because you always start series in the end of the book. Um, This is actually um, something that Austin and I kind of came up with um, joking around at a a meeting, uh, as so often is the case. And we were just like, what if you did like a a gospel backwards, something like that? Like the movie Memento, where, you know, it starts at the end and it goes backwards. And the end of the movie is the beginning. Um, There's other examples of that in movies, but I could not remember one um, besides Memento. That's my favorite. But... There's something about that um, where you tell a story in reverse. I know, so, I know somebody who reads the last page of a novel every time they read a book. And of course, I'm famous for spoiling things. So this works perfectly because I've just spoiled the end of the gospel. If you have never heard of a gospel before or read a gospel, now you know how it ends. It ends, actually in this gospel, it's very mysterious because it's not even clear how it ends. You just have these women who have met this angel and they've just got to trust what the angel is saying but they never actually encounter the risen Christ. Um, later on, the, uh, the church couldn't handle this ending, so they had to add this other ending that's not really in there. But in your Bible, you might see this as an alternative ending. That was, that's not in any of the earliest manuscripts we have. So this is where Mark actually wanted to end the book. Um, but you know, it doesn't change your experience of, of reading a book if you read from the end, or if you watch a movie Like, if you know that the Death Star explodes, there's a spoiler right there, but if you know that the Death Star explodes, when you watch the battle between Obi-Wan Kenobi uh, and Darth Vader, and when Darth Vader kills Obi-Wan Kenobi, if you knew the Death Star was going to blow up, it would change the way that you would experience the lightsaber battle. So that's uh, kind of like this, you know. Knowing the resurrection is going to change the way you read the crucifixion story, which is next week. And knowing the crucifixion story will change the way that you read the trial of Jesus, which is the week before that, and so on and so forth, till the very beginning of the gospel. So we thought we would try this. Uh, I think sometimes it helps to see things afresh when you read it backwards. I, for instance, I love to read, when I read the Psalms, uh, I read the Psalms sometimes backwards. So I'll start in Psalm 23 with the end of Psalm 23. Um, and then you read backwards. That helps to kind of see it in a new way. So that's what we're doing with the Gospels here. So I want to look at a couple of things about this ending of the Gospel, um, which is typical of the whole Gospel of Mark. Number one, that um, this is about a king. It's a very strange king. So strange, that's definitely a big part of the Gospel of Mark, that this king turns the world upside down. Uh, He flips the values of the the world over. If If the world's a pyramid where everybody's trying to get to the top, and get above all the people to the one person at the very top, 
The king flips that over and he says, we need to go to the bottom. And the very greatest is to serve from the bottom. And I am the, I am the bottom of the funnel where everything comes through me. Everything comes down to me. And, we, and the goal in the kingdom is to serve everyone above you. So that's the kind of king we have. And he upends the world um, by the way that he rises from the dead. Even the way that Mark tells a story is, um, is, is kind of uh, shocking, subversive, revolutionary. So that's the first thing is the way the story is told. It upends the conventions of the world. And number two, along those same lines, we see that Christ conquers the world. His great victory, his, his, uh, his way of conquering the world is through crucifixion, uh, through this uh, instrument of torture. It doesn't make any sense. So those are the two things. He, he upends the world and he conquers the world through crucifixion. So first of all, verse one, when the Sabbath was passed, that's Saturday. So this is now early Sunday morning. Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James, which is Mary, the Virgin Mary, the mother of Jesus, and Salome brought spices so that they might go and anoint him. So try to picture this. Um, it's very early, verse two, very early, and the sun has just risen. So it's kind of like right now, but in reverse. So imagine they're going to the tomb and like I'm looking at the silhouettes of those trees and those buildings, and it's like black against that red sky. That's what they would have seen as they approached you know, the, um, the tomb. They would have seen um, the outline of the rocks of this tomb in Jerusalem. They're actually very expensive, these tombs. So it was owned by Joseph of Arimathea. He gave the tomb to the disciples of Jesus so they could bury him in the tomb. So these women are walking to that tomb. They spend all Friday and Saturday um, mixing these expensive oils for perfume. Because I, I guess that was the thing, they, the only thing they could think to do now that, that Jesus had died so unexpectedly and tragically. It says they went home and they prepared spices and perfumes. I think out of their grief, maybe out of delirium of some kind, they, that's all they knew what to do. I think when something like this happens and some tragedy befalls you and someone dies, sometimes you don't know what to do at all. You're just so shocked and just flooded with emotion that all you can do is just try to serve in some way. And so they're preparing these spices. And they're doing that to put it on the body to prevent the body from stinking, from the odor of death. So that's why they're doing what they're doing. They prepare these spices. Uh, but if, if you think about what they're doing, it doesn't make any sense for two reasons. And you might have thought about this while Caroline was reading the, the story, but what are the two reasons it makes no sense? Number one, um, there's a stone there. And I love how Mark says in verse four, it was very large, typical biblical understated humor. Their grief had befuddled their minds and they didn't even think about the fact that when they get to the tomb, they know there's gonna be a stone there they can't move. And so they say that in verse three. They were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? So they know there's this stone that they can't roll away. That's the first reason it doesn't really make any sense. Number two, maybe more profoundly, uh, they are totally doubting the resurrection. They're obviously expecting this body to still be there or they wouldn't bring the spices to anoint the body. So they're full of doubt. They're full of unbelief. Uh, they were repeatedly told by Jesus, I'm going to rise on the third day. And instead of going there to meet the risen Christ, they go there with perfume to put on the dead body of Christ that they can't even get to because it's behind the stone. And when the angel met them, the angel could have said, what are you doing with spices in your hand? Did you not know that he was going to rise? Um, 
Instead, the angel says in verse six, simply, he is risen. He is not here. They're now inside the tomb because the stone was rolled away. They're meeting the angel inside of the tomb and the angel says, he is not here. He is risen. And look, you can look for yourself. Look at the place they laid him. And when they looked, they were just the clothes. The mummy, uh, you know, they wrap people like, in, like a mummy uh, in bandages. And apparently the bandages had just caved in. They weren't even unwrapped. They just caved in so that it was clear that he just rose right through the bandages. They look and they see he's not there. And I love the fact that although they are totally disoriented and full of doubt, full of unbelief, and they're kind of clueless, and yet God uses their love for Christ. He uses their grief. And all they can do is try to serve in some way, the best they can. And he uses that to draw them to the tomb. Obviously, they weren't going there for the right reason, but he uses that desire in their hearts, that little flicker of love for Christ, and he draws them to the tomb, and he makes them the very first witnesses of the resurrection, which is the greatest event in the history of the world. And the very first witnesses were these three women, Salome, the Virgin Mary, and Mary Magdalene. Uh, one of them is a widow, one is a prostitute. Uh, we don't really know much about Salome, but these are not people who are on the upper echelon of society. And yet God comes to them and he says, I want you to be the very first preachers of the gospel. You are the ones who are going to tell all of these disciples who have run away and are afraid have denied me and some of them betrayed me. And I want you to go and tell them first that you were witnesses to the resurrection. Verse seven, go tell his disciples. This was not plan B. This was God's plan from the beginning, which is absolutely amazing because if you know anything about first century Roman society and women, uh, they were not treated with respect, especially intellectually. They were not treated as intellectual equals by any means. In fact, their testimony was not admissible in a Roman court of law, nor a Jewish court of law. And, and girls were not allowed to be taught by rabbis, which is one reason it was very radical that Jesus taught Mary. She was at his feet listening to him. That was very radical for him to do that. So this story could have been very, very embarrassing to the early church. And I'm sure that um, the first time, you know, if Mark was trying to run this story by a Roman centurion, kind of like a first draft, like, what do you think about this story? And the Roman centurion's like reading, or a senator maybe, I don't know, someone, some Roman uh, elite, and the, the centurion would have said to Mark, you know, you end with these women and uh, that's not gonna work at all. That's not gonna play well in Rome. You're gonna wanna leave that out. And then I can imagine Peter, who was the one who told Mark about all these events. Mark is just writing down what he learned from Peter. And I can imagine Peter running over to, to Mark and saying, no, 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 I want that in there. That's got to be in there because they are the ones who told me and John and I were cowering in the upper room and Jesus wanted them to be the ones that saw him first and tell me. So Peter insists that the first witnesses be the resurrection, that they be the first ones. Uh, that it's an upside down kingdom. It doesn't make any sense to the world. It befuddles the world. Just as he wanted a teenage uh, girl from Nazareth who is, uh, who is not married and yet pregnant, caused all sorts of rumors, all sorts of scandal in this tiny little village of Nazareth. And God says, I want her to be the one uh, who brings my son into this universe. 
And I love how Mary, uh, the mother of Jesus, sang when she first realized what was happening to her. She sang this song, the Magnificat, and she says, he casts down the mighty from their thrones, he casts down the mighty, and he exalts the humble. And that's exactly what he's doing in this story. He's just smashing the, the Jewish Roman view of women and their court systems and their philosophies. Uh, and he's saying, I don't care at all about the world's view of status and wisdom. And I love how Paul joins this, Paul the Apostle. He says in 1 Corinthians 1.20, where is the wise one? Where is the scholar? Where is the great author? Where is the great orator, the debater of this age? And Paul says, has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world, the supposed wisdom of this world? And so this story essentially puts a banana peel under the feet of the empire and completely trips up our definitions of importance and status and prestige, and they just completely fall flat on their face. And so you need to think about someone that you know, and maybe you're that person, someone that you know that um, they may think uh, that their life has almost no meaning at all, that they feel totally invisible, uh, they feel they are of no use. Um, maybe they're always in pain and they're always needing help and they, they're really frustrated that they can't really help anyone and they just always need help. And, uh, you know, I've talked to people who said, I don't even know why I'm here anymore. I don't know why I'm on earth anymore. Why doesn't God just take me? All I am ever is a burden to anyone. I don't benefit society at all. And I feel like God would come and say through a story like this, that's just not the way that I work. You're fundamentally misunderstanding the way the gospel works. Because nobody could have been more invisible than these women. And no one would have felt more futile than these women. They were so confused. They didn't know what they were doing. And yet God says, I want Mary and Mary and Salome. I want them to be the ones to change the world. And God does this all the time in the Bible. He comes through things that are weak. Paul says to the Corinthian church, not many of you were wise not many of you were powerful, not many of you were noble, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise, and he chooses what is weak in the world to shame the strong, and he chooses what is low and despised to bring to nothing the things that we consider important. That's just the way the kingdom works. So be encouraged. They didn't know what they were doing. I didn't know what I was doing when I went to seminary. I didn't know what I was doing when I planted a church. I was clueless. Uh, when people have children, a lot of times they don't know what to do with the child. There's this living thing in their hands and they have no idea what to do with. They feel totally clueless. And don't let anyone tell you uh, that uh, everything is futile or it's all for naught or it's going to be a disaster because that's the way the kingdom comes. The kingdom comes when we are at our wit's end, when we don't even know what we're doing. We're so full of grief and bewilderment that we're just paralyzed. And that's where the kingdom comes in power. Sometimes when you're most embarrassed, when you fall flat on your face. Because when Jesus was hanging up there on the cross, being crucified, uh, he did not look very powerful. And he probably didn't feel very powerful either. Um, but he turned the world upside down. That's what they told, that's what the uh, people in Philippi um, said about the Christians when they came the people of Philippi said, these Christians are turning the world upside down, saying there's another king. And that's who Jesus was. He was the king that turned the world upside down. That's in Acts 17.6. So uh, first, 
We see how he upends the world through the story of the resurrection of these women. And now number two, we see how uh, not only does he turn the world upside down, he conquers the emperor. He conquers the devil. He conquers the enemy, the Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. And he conquers them through this crazy plan where, spoiler alert, but, um, you know, when Harry Potter uh, defeats Voldemort, he does the same thing. I won't go into that in detail, but um, check it out. If, if, if you want to know how evil is defeated, just watch the, the last Harry Potter movie. But it's very similar to this. He's like, come and do your worst. And let's see what happens. And that's exactly what Jesus does to Satan. Come and do your worst. And let's see what happens. So um, verse 6, the angel says, you seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. The angel didn't have to say who was crucified. They knew, they knew he was crucified. It's not like they needed disambiguation on that point. You know, there was only one crucified Jesus of Nazareth. Why does the angel say uh, who was crucified? Uh, because the angel wanted them to know that God is, um, is using the crucified one to conquer all evil. That the really the epitome of evil, which was a crucifixion, will be the way that God will conquer evil. So imagine the centurion again talking to Mark and they're processing the gospel. He's giving him some feedback and the centurion's like, now Mark, you do know what crucifixion was about, right? You know um, why we crucified people. Uh, You do understand why we erect crosses uh, as the Roman Empire. The, the crucifixion was an unnecessarily evil form of the death penalty. You know, we think about the, the guillotine, uh, the gas chamber, the electric chair. I mean, can you imagine wearing a, a necklace with the guillotine on it uh, or any of those things? But you know, those three instruments of death, uh, all three actually were invented by people who were trying to be very uh, rational and scientific. And they were actually, it's not humane, but they were trying to be humane and efficient in the way they killed people with the guillotine, the gas chamber, and the electric chair. Now, the Roman Empire was exactly the opposite. They were not trying to do something that was humane. They were trying to do something that was most inhumane. They were like, let's figure out a way to kill someone that involves the most torture and public humiliation. And so they had these seven-inch nails, seven-inch nails. Uh, They severed the medial nerve They paralyzed your hands. They elongated your arms seven inches while you hung there. This was absolutely gruesome. This is not um, the guillotine at all. And so God says, I want to choose that. And I want that to be the symbol of my kingdom, the crucifixion. You know, the centurion would say uh, the crucifixion is how Caesar showed he was superior to all powers. Uh, A crucifixion humiliated and desecrated anyone who crosses Caesar. And it reaffirms that uh, Caesar is God and Savior. They found an inscription about Caesar Augustus and it said, The gospel of the divine Caesar sent to us as Savior, having become a God. And so it's Caesar versus little tiny Jesus. You know, the monster, uh, the divine Caesar, the seven-headed monster versus the little tiny man on the cross. And Mark is saying to the Roman centurion, that's exactly my point, that Jesus of Nazareth was crucified and is now risen and he has conquered and he has swept up crucifixion into his own life and he has conquered it. And the the waters of the ocean have just 
covered over it. It's just completely been conquered by love. It's like a boxer. You know, imagine a, a boxer who has been just pummeled, smashed in the face over and over and is down for the count, flat on the mat, and you think for sure it's over, and the, the other boxer is like dancing around, um, taunting him, you know, standing over him, getting big over him, and, and the, worst that, the worst that the empire could do to the king, the worst that Satan could do to the son of God, he had, he'd done, he had done. And he was down, down for the count, and then imagine that person on the mat slowly begins to move and like put their hands down and slowly get up. And you can, you can imagine the fear of the one who thought they had done everything they possibly could to destroy him. And now the king is beginning to rise up. And that's exactly what has happened on the cross. Um, Satan has done his worst and God has conquered him through the crucifixion, through this act of extreme weakness and humiliation. My counsel always tells me, Satan will regret everything that he's ever done to mess with you. And I love that, I love that line. It, it, that doesn't just, it's not just that it applies to the crucifixion, it applies to your life. That the very worst things that have happened to you, all the dark designs of our enemy, and I do believe in Satan, I guess that's pretty clear by now, but uh, if you have any questions about Satan, I'd love to talk about that. I don't know how there's any way to explain radical evil without the concept of Satan. But... Um, there is this mind out there that is malicious and that it hates you. He, he hates you. Uh, you can't imagine how much he hates you. And yet God uses everything he ever tries to do to you. And he turns that around. And he overcomes it. And you might feel like you're at the very bottom of all things. You're like a bottom feeder. And Christ on the cross says to you, no one was lower than me. And you might feel like you're embarrassing or you're ugly and Christ says, no one was more of a laughing stock than me. They were laughing at me. I was disfigured to the point you couldn't even tell I was human. And you might feel lonely or ignored. And Christ would say to you, no one has been more ignored than me. And you might have fumbled the ball or missed the chip shot or blown the free throw. And Christ says to you, you know, that just makes for my best material. I use that stuff and uh, we still win. And I use that kind of stuff to make for the best endings. And so imagine, once again, Peter and Mark, and they're talking about the gospel, and they're like, you know, no one's ever written one of these before. We're, we're kind of the first. We're working on a new genre of literature called the gospel. Um, how do we end this thing? This is the first one that was written. Uh, Matthew, Luke, John were written after this. They used parts of Mark in their gospels. So Mark and Peter are discussing, how do we end the gospel? How would you end a gospel like this? And Mark's like, I've got it. Um, they fled from the tomb, trembling seized them. They said nothing and they were afraid. And Peter's like, that's not a very powerful ending. It's kind of weak. And then Mark's like, well, you know, his power is made perfect in our weakness. That's the whole point. And so this is where the story ends. Here's where the story ends. The story ends with this table. Remember, we love these rascals.